welcome to Net Zero Future. I'm your host, Claudia, and I'm joined here by Adrian. Hi, Adrian. Hello. Great to be on the second installment of your Net Zero Future series. Thanks, Adrian. In this episode, we got to talk to Selma Vincent, a student and climate activist with Youth for Climate Luxembourg. So what were your takeaways from this conversation with Selma? She's very knowledgeable about climate change. She's very young and has already experienced a lot. She was a youth delegate at the COP26 conference in Glasgow. She's been to the pre-COP conference and most recently to the Stockholm Plus 50 conference. And she's met Greta Thunberg. We had a lot to talk about. I really enjoyed our conversation. I think she's a fascinating person to talk to. So indeed, a lot of exposure to the climate scene. To the Luxembourg community and government officials, Selma is known as a ferocious activist with a fair bit of influence alongside her peers. I personally came in as a devil's advocate because climate activism is important in our society, but oftentimes you need to instill some economic realism, which I wanted to discuss with her. Yes, well, I think you and I could go on forever, just like we could with Selma. And I actually hope to have her back on the show later this season or next season. Yes, very much so. But now, without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Selma Vincent, student and climate activist with Youth for Climate Luxembourg. Hi, Selma. Welcome to Net Zero Future. Hi, I'm glad to be here. First, can you tell me how old you are? Sure, I'm 19 years old. So I think you are so far our youngest guest on Natural Future for sure, and even Lux Unplugged podcast series. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you how you became a climate activist. And actually, would you even describe yourself as a climate activist? So yes, it is the correct term. And actually, the story of how I got into this is a little bit funny. Basically, back when I was, I think, 16, I went to a protest just because uh, for the hell of it, and it was for the climate, and it was back when it wasn't really going yet, at least not in the Luxembourgish scene, it wasn't really a thing to protest for the climate, so this was really a first, and I don't know, once I got there, it was like a moment of epiphany a little bit, and I really, really got into the protest itself, and I was in like the front line, and I guess somebody took a picture of me as I was really, really riled up and angry and screaming, and I was lifting my, my fist up into the sky and I found myself on like social media. Somebody posted me on Facebook and then an organizer of Rise Up for Climate Luxembourg, my good friend now Brice Montaigne, he was actually the one who posted it. And then he started asking around, who is this person? She seems very motivated. And obviously, since this is Luxembourg, it didn't take very long for the word to come back to me. And I was contacted and he was like, oh, well, listen, we're starting this this little group. Unbeknownst to me, that was the beginning of Youth Climate Luxembourg as we know it today. And so we co-founded Youth for Climate Luxembourg. Um, and as for your question, do I consider myself a climate activist? I think that I do. Obviously, I, I do realize that I am a very privileged person in terms of as far as climate activists go. I mean, I'm not risking my life every day by going out into the streets or organizing or meeting with police or politicians, it's very easy to me because we live in one of the most democratic countries in the world. And recently I met with some Syrian climate activists and it's not at all the same discourse or some Palestinian climate activists. And so I think I salute their work a lot more. It's much braver and in that sense, I think they merit the badge of climate activists more. But yeah, if there is a term I can use, I think that is the one. So what is the difference between a Luxembourg activist and anyone that is not based in Luxembourg, essentially? 
<clears throat> I think our task is a bit different because in my experience, and I was born and raised here, I haven't seen that much of a protest activity here and let alone in issues of climate. We have a very um, rich population who is also a very big consumer-based population. And therefore, we kind of try to not look at our own activities and our own impacts on the world. When unfortunately, you know, for instance, the fact that Luxembourg goes beyond Earth Overshoot Day, which is basically the day where in a year you have already consumed all of that year's resources for your country. Well, Luxembourg is always the first to hit that point or second, I believe, after Qatar. So the fact is we tend to not look at our own selves in terms of climate and therefore activism makes it a bit trickier. So it was really, really riling up of the status quo when we set the scene. It was a little bit, um, you know, <laughs> brutal in a sense. We actually had to to come in and 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 really say we want change. We're we're done with this way of just keeping it business as usual. I think you're absolutely right. We have the largest ecological footprint after Qatar and we're very rich, so we consume a lot. So we, from that standpoint and just from a climate justice fairness standpoint, we really do need to reduce our footprint. And then with Luxembourg being a financial capital in Europe, the kinds of policies we enact when it comes to sustainable finance, we have the opportunity to direct the investment to support the transition or to let greenwashing take over and, and just sit back and do nothing. So this excuse that Luxembourg is too small to matter definitely does not hold when it comes to climate change. So I'm really glad you guys sparked this movement. <laughs> well, in fact, uh, kind of just to piggyback on what you just mentioned with all things investment and finance, essentially that was our last protest. The issue that we saw while collaborating with Greenpeace is that ESG investments are not always green, and there's a lot of greenwashing going on there. So you could consider an ESG investment to be, for instance, investing in a coal mine in China because potentially it's more sustainable, just slightly more sustainable than investing in a fossil fuel industry in Canada, you know? And and we saw that and we were like, how is it possible that in 2022, it is considered sustainable to invest in a coal mine? And so that was the first point of our of our protest. Second point was protesting about the fact that we have a pension fund here in Luxembourg called the FTC, and they invest 300 million euros into fossil fuel sectors of these taxpayers' money. So we protested for more transparency and also for them to stop funding essentially our deaths. So I think it was just really interesting for you to bring that up because obviously it seems so abstract, it seems so distant. Um, you know, money, how could that really be concrete and impacts our air, our land, our resources? Well, it does. And Luxembourg plays no small part in that. I, I remember that protest. I was there as well. And I actually saw you in the front row there cheering, you know, <laughs> with the megaphone. So I, yeah, you're absolutely right. Where our money goes matters a lot. We need investments to make the transition happen, but we also want to prevent investments in, in fossil fuels. I know that you were part of Luxembourg's youth delegation to the COP26 conference in Glasgow. I admit that I'm actually very jealous that you got to go, and I really want to hear more about your experience. What was it like, and how did you even get to play this role and go there? So I'm really fortunate in that youth climate because we're a younger association. We have really, really well-meaning other climate associations here in Luxembourg that 
really protect us and I think play sort of a parental role ever since we started. One of those institutions is ASTM, so Association Solidarité de Monde, which is basically an organization for solidarity between the global north, so countries within Europe and North America, and basically with the global south, which is the rest of the world. They gave me accreditation to go and actually be in Glasgow as a, a youth activist and to represent the Luxembourgish youth. My experience there was interesting in the sense that we still don't know if it's because of COVID or if it's just the way it was designed, but it was quite a limiting and sort of exclusive conference. For instance, there were only 10,000 people allowed in the event. And if you weren't one of the first 10,000 people in that day, you just were not going to be part of the conference, which is in sort in like planning terms was interesting to me. And unfortunately, if you weren't part of the UN delegation, then you were probably part of civil society and you were not in the priority of people to be within those 10,000, which meant that civil society was often excluded. And if you were youth, then it was even harder for you to even get accreditation or to even have funding to get there in the first place. So that was sort of the first, you know, unfortunate point of, of COP. However, there were some positive points. There was a lot of media attention. As youth, we felt pretty pretty hurt, at least in the media space. I remember we had two huge protests. I think one of them had over 60,000 people, and that was really, really great of all ages. You know, you had schoolgoers, kindergartners protesting with us, elderly. It was, it was really wonderful to see that energy coming together. And in that sense, we were able to get a message across to have our politicians act and act now and and have really, really ambitious climate pledges. And third point, I guess, is that unfortunately, although this message was definitely passed, it wasn't necessarily heard. And I think even the president of the COP himself, Alok Sharma, you know, spilled a tear. It was sort of a sad moment, actually, to see at the end there when the most ambitious climate pledges, I think it was for coal, the reduction of, of coal, uh, was not taken into consideration by the countries of India and China. So, yeah, in that sense, I think there were some good pledges, I think, with uh, regards to, you know, reforestation, the cutting of methane emissions. But overall, in terms of fossil fuel, the language wasn't strong enough. So it was sort of a bittersweet moment. Sweet because obviously a huge community of activists and a huge community of civil society who was definitely there to be heard and bitter because I guess we just weren't in that regard. You're talking a lot about the need to reduce consumption of fossil fuels, and that was the hope that came out of the COP26 back in Glasgow. But uh, since then, we've gone through the war in Ukraine and the West wanting to step away from Russian supplies of oil and gas. So it's really shifted a little bit the geopolitical card, so to speak. And then at the same time, we just found out that with higher prices now, people have come back to their needs. So they're going to burn coal because they need to, to warm themselves up, not only in Europe, in the, in the States, but also in more impoverished countries. Mm-hmm. What is your message or what is your thought process in, in this case? Because now needs Trump pledges from those conferences. What would you, what, what is your thinking now, having, having all this in mind? No, definitely you're right. I think what we do have to always keep into consideration is that we're all just trying to survive and none of us are going to be perfect, right? Us climate activists, we can bang and scream all we want, but ultimately we're we're all human and we're just trying to make it to the next day. But it also, I think, unfortunately, 
underlines the structural weaknesses of our systems. It shows how dependent we are and how poorly designed our energy systems were designed in the first place. So in, instead of, I think, seeing this as a way that more and more way where we're have to, we have to be dependent on possibly an autocratic leader, maybe it's, a, it's a, an opportunity, an opportunity to see just how urgent this crisis is, not only because it's environmental, but also political. We don't want to be put in this position ever, ever again. So it's an opportunity to make sure that we, we make new policies and new technology and just increase the speed at which we are conducting the ecological transition to be more independent and more dependent on renewable energies and not these energies which can put us in such a fragile situation so quickly. I think you're right that the war in Ukraine gives us an additional moral obligation to really get out of fossil fuels mm. as fast as we can. What are your thoughts on nuclear? Ooh, that's a tough question because I recently had a paper where I had to play devil's advocate on nuclear energy and I was like, hmm, I sort of agree with some of these points. I hope nobody will crucify me at least for saying this. The, the main argument is that we don't know what to do with the waste so far, and that's true, but there's new technology being developed every day to find a way to eliminate that waste. Also, it, it actually produces almost no emissions. It's not as unsafe as it was prior. I think overall, I'm more pro-nuclear energy. If we have to choose between fossil gas and nuclear energy, I'm going to go with nuclear energy every time. But then again, nuclear is still super, super costly and super, super slow to put into place. And also there's upkeep and it never goes to plan. So in that sense, maybe putting all of that investment and all of that thoughts into renewables is probably the best way to go. And I think the only way to go in the future. So I wanted to talk now about how we met. We actually met at a lunch talk organized by the Paper Jam and Delano Club back in March. You were sitting on the podium. You were speaking alongside the former Minister of Environment, Karol Dieschbuck, on the subject of COP26. I was in the audience, so I can kind of give a, a flavor of what it was like there. The Paper Jam and Delano Club is for business leaders, so there's the sense that everyone in the audience felt quite important. It was a fancy place to be. And I have the feeling that your presence put us a bit on guard. I was thinking... Oh, here is someone who can really hold us accountable. And I think they even gave you a red button to press when you thought that there was some, some BS going on to, to call everyone out. Yeah. And I have to say that I think we were all a bit afraid because if you weren't there, then we would all feel quite great and self-congratulatory. But with you there, I had the feeling that we would really be held to account. I wanted to ask you about how you feel to actually be in this kind of situation to have your voice elevated, having this platform to speak, but then recognizing, of course, that this shouldn't really be your job as a 19-year-old to speak to a room of business people and to hold us to account. I think I really agree with you because ultimately, I am literally just in my second year of studies. I've just finished my second year of studies. Um, so I sometimes feel ridiculous and sort of like imposter syndrome just even being there. Obviously, I'm really honored and I'm really thankful. I think Carol Dierschburg is a very sensible and open person, but there's definitely some other environments where I feel like my voice is not being heard as genuinely as, as it had been there at the Delano talk. 
there was a time, for instance, and I'm not going to say the name of the minister because I don't know if I can get sued. But basically, there was a minister who once invited us to come and meet and discuss the sector that he was a minister of us. So, but prior to coming, actually, what was funny is that we received an email that we were not supposed to receive. This email was sent by his deputy, and the deputy was basically saying, oh, yes, make sure that when you meet with these young people to really take a picture, basically, it didn't really matter what we were going to say, but what really mattered was that picture, and we were shocked to receive that, and obviously, they didn't know we received it, so we were like, what do we do? Do we take this to the press? Do we not? Do we, I don't know, confront him? In the end, we ended up confronting both the deputy and the minister because we were thought it was completely unacceptable to be sort of used in that way. And in that regard, I think that story tells an important message of of basically there's always that danger of youth washing. On the one hand, yes, when youth aren't present, it's sort of a self-congratulatory ambiance, as you described. But then sometimes when we're there, thankfully, there's well-meaning people such as Keller Dieschburg and yourself who will listen to us genuinely and authentically. But then there's also the risk of sort of being weaponized to be like another form of self-congratulation of being like, yes, we have youth, we have youth present, they're here, but they're not really listening to what we have to say. You had mentioned this before, that for other climate activists in Syria, Palestinian, there are being climate activists in this sort of war zone. And then when it comes to Vanessa Nakati from Uganda, I was listening to a conversation she had, and she was saying that it's very difficult to organize Fridays for Future protests there and ask people to skip school when everyone there knows how crucial an education is to have even any chance of, of a good life. And that with parents paying what little money they have for tuition, you know, it's a really hard choice for someone to make. So I just wanted to hear what you think about the role that youth activists play, how it can be misused, and what should we as a society be careful of when we interact with you and, and when we elevate your voices? What's important when you're collaborating between Global North and Global South activists is obviously the question of differentiated responsibility, right? So we have a greater responsibility as the global north because we are the most impactful emitters and yet the global south are those who are experiencing the most of the damages. I have this good friend. She told me that even during COP26, she felt that she experienced racism. She wasn't getting as much media coverage as she should have. And this is a quite a common experience for climate activists from sub-Saharan Africa. So what we try to make sure of, at least in the youth movement, I don't know how it works in the actual official settings between delegates, but for us, we always make sure that their perspective is the ones that are first listened to and the most listened to. And then we come in as support kind of, because we don't know what it's like, literally. Like I have no clue what climate change looks like because I live here in Luxembourg. The closest link I have to it really is my family in Morocco because I'm half Moroccan and Some of their lands have dried up and, and they've been forced out of some of their livelihoods as farmers. But that's pretty much it and doesn't affect me directly. And I'm thankful to say that I'm really lucky to say that. But that isn't the case for these people for whom literally the climate change is not some distant future, but their actual presence. And as we mentioned before, like even coming to these global summits is really either a risky. It's risky for them to speak out because it's considered a political subject and they're not allowed to do so. Or B, it's just really costly and they don't have the means to do so. So my friend from MAPA, she was actually forced to stay behind after COP and wait for weeks and weeks until she had enough funds to go back home. 
So those are really important conversations, whether it be between youth activists, but also within UN topics of the climate crisis. So we have, for instance, the topic of loss and damages, which is really important to me. It's basically the conversation around the economies within the global south that have already been essentially destroyed or that have resources or lands that have been already drastically damaged. So we as the global north, our role in in these loss and damages is to be funding, is to be financial supports. So what you can do as civil society is try to encourage that and to always, always, always bring it up to the forefront of your politicians' minds or when you're electing them or that kind of political action. So you're saying that for politicians to change, you encourage your peers to, or everyone, to do more activism or to do more educational stuff so that when they vote for those politicians, they make educated choices, essentially. You know, you're really right, Adrien, because climate education is something that's maybe not talked enough about, but it's definitely a bit of both. I think not everybody is comfortable with being an activist, which I completely get. So while I do really, really encourage you to do so, because especially here in Luxembourg, it's really a small community where you can have an impact just by meeting or or protesting in front of certain institutions, because you know that those people are behind those doors and will listen to what you have to say. Or sometimes they'll even invite you from their own will. That happened to us with two different EU commissioners on issues of climate. So in Luxembourg, activism, definitely the way to go. However, if you're anywhere else or just not comfortable with it, I think definitely educating yourself about who the best climate representatives can be and if they really know their stuff, if they're involved in these really important topics such as loss and damage, definitely is also the way to go. Your vote means the world. And if you are in a democratic country such as this one, it can have a huge, huge impact that cannot be understated. I have a very um, cheeky question for you. Do you necessarily feel that the youngsters feel empowered by voting for the current class of politicians? In, in the sense, because for me, if you're an activist, especially young activist, it doesn't necessarily mean that you go vote because you feel like the system is detached from you. So that's an interesting topic because uh, recently there were, I think in December of, of last year, there's a new platform that was started called the platform climatique et de transition énergétique that is a bridge between civil society and the government and so they did this and invited a lot of different actors within the climate scene the government was kind of expecting people to jump up and down when we received this invitation to participate we as youth of climate accepted and we think it's important to participate But this was not the case for everybody, and some actually really declined to even be part of it because, as you said, they don't even believe in the system anymore, and they just think it's a waste of time. And if anything, their inaction or their withdrawal is a political statement in itself. I personally think, though, if you have the chance to vote, then do, because my friend in Syria doesn't have that benefit so I just think that it, we complain a lot and, and rightfully so but ultimately we're living in one of the freest countries in the world where politicians care enough to invite you and have these conversations even if they are just there to take a picture with you at least they're pretending and at least they're putting in the effort to try and pretend that's not the case for most of other countries there's some countries where climate is not even anywhere near the discussion so I think if you have that chance then just take it and I apologize for this 
off track question, but it, it ties into the vote topic in general. You were saying earlier that we should divest from fossil fuel companies. But if you believe in vote, instead of divesting from such companies, why wouldn't you keep your shares and actually try to stay within the system or within the shareholder structure to influence, to do shareholder activism essentially within? I see what you mean. And there have definitely been examples of successful shareholder activism. I'm thinking of this example in a bank, I think in Australia, where the shareholders were no longer happy with the fact that their money actually was being invested in fossil fuel companies without their knowledge. And so they were able to sue on the lack of transparency in that regard. And it actually works. And then they stopped and then they became much more transparent. Unfortunately, that's not always the case. Like it, it, It's rare that there are these big wins in climate litigation. So that's the first point, I think, is that it's not as successful as we think it to be. And the second point is, I guess it depends really on your outlook on the climate crisis and climate justice and really just politics. I know a lot of my friends here at Climate maybe don't necessarily believe in green capitalism and maybe think it's a fantasy. And, you know, I cannot fault them. And maybe in some ways I am a part of that thought. Because where have has it brought us so far? I think if there was such a thing as green capitalism, we would have discovered it by now, or at least we wouldn't be in this mess. And in, in that case, if you disagree with green capitalism, then why would you even partake in it? Instead of cutting out the problem at the root, you're sort of trying to mend the branches, but the branches are broken. And it's just going to draw it out when we could be participating in radical climate action now. So while I do agree with you that it can be an avenue, and if that's how you're going to get involved, I think being involved is better than just not. So definitely go for that. But in my personal advice, even though these are extremely, extremely powerful institutions with extremely powerful and persuasive lobbies who do, uh, you know, impact our policies and our government's decisions, I personally don't think it's the way to go. And if, if you want to, you know, go with the activist ethos, I don't think it's really the way to go either. So you're our window into climate activism, but you're also a window into the youth of Luxembourg, your fellow students when you were in school. How much do they know about climate change? How much do they know about decarbonization? And how, how do they feel about climate change in general? I think we know like a fair amount. I don't know a single person now who isn't at least a little bit concerned with the climate crisis, mostly because most of our information does come from social media and we can't underestimate its power because it's gotten so many people involved and ultimately that's what matters, right? It, even if it's just through like a TikTok that you were informed, maybe that TikTok will lead you to become part of the UN and, and that's what matters really. Interestingly, there's some people who don't even really care. And I think that's mainly because we're in Luxembourg. And as I, like we mentioned earlier, we're not confronted with it. But obviously, if you live in a village in Morocco, for instance, you're much more aware of it because it's in your food and it's in your water and it's in your land. So far, some climate education, it's definitely part of our curricula, which is more than many other countries can say. However, the depth is yet to be determined. So you're just 19. I mean, you've basically embarked on an entire education outside of your, your formal education. I wanted to ask you, are you studying at university now? And what do you think you will do when you, when you finish? Will you continue working in this domain? 
Yes, so I actually just finished my second year at uh, Sciences Po Paris, which is a political science school in France. And it's really been great. It's not really climate specific because it's just more like political sciences as a whole, but it's still been super interesting. And obviously, I can, since I've been able to participate in some UN conferences, most recently Stockholm Plus 50, like I got to kind of see and understand how things worked and the behind the scenes of it all. And I think later, I'd like to work either at the UNEP, so the United Nations Environmental Environment uh, Program, or UNFCCC. Uh, so really looking forward to potentially working there. If there's anybody from, from the UN listening to this, please hire me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, that's how it's looking for me, hopefully. I think UNEP and UNFCCC would be lucky to have you. So I think <laughs> everyone can keep an eye out for you to be good. Thank you. Now, before we wrap up this conversation, what is the best way for not only young activists, anyone who's interested in the course you're defending, how can anyone follow you? Where's the best platform to, to keep up with your updates, your ideas, essentially? Oh, that's really nice of you to mention. I think really just following either the Youth Climate uh, Lux account on Instagram or the Youth Climate TikTok. I think we're on Facebook as well. And I guess LinkedIn is where things are happening professionally now as well. Oh, thank you, Salma. I encourage everyone to follow the accounts that Salma just mentioned. I've been to protests. I've seen you there. I hope that others will join as well. So I really encourage everyone to come. And I wanted to thank you, Salma, for being here on Net Zero Future. It was a pleasure to talk to you and education for, for us. And I wish you the best of luck in your studies. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Net Zero Future podcast on Lux Unplugged. Please share this podcast with friends and family and leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Also, please don't forget to visit our website, luxunplugged.com. We welcome your feedback and ideas for new episodes. See you next time.